Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world. Great upheavals, terrible struggles, wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked. And I shall be very prominent in the defence of London. I see further ahead than you do. I see into the future. This country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means I do not know. But I tell you, I shall be in command of the defences of London, and I shall save London and England. Dominic, no question who that was, because the the impression was absolutely spot on. That was, of course, Winston Churchill. But, Dominic, I'm playing a trick, because he didn't actually sound like that, because when he said that, he was 16. He was a Harrow, and he 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 was looking into the future. Um, and it's a reminder. So if we, you know, with Wordsworth, we say the child is father to the man. The idea of Churchill as the savior of his nation was there in the great man's head, perhaps right from the very beginning. Um, and so you suggested, didn't you, that it might be fun to do not, not because we haven't actually done any episodes focused on Churchill up until now, but to do one f- looking at young Churchill, the making yeah. of the man. Yes, Tom. So that was 1891, the summer of 1891, and Churchill was at Harrow. Uh, he had gone to chapel. It's a funny story. He'd gone to chapel, Evensong, and he and his friend Merlin Evans, who went on to become a diplomat, they, they went back to their boarding house, and they were just sort of messing around as teenagers are, just chatting, and they talk about what they're going to do when they grow up. And I think Merlin Evans says, well, I'll probably be a diplomat like my father. And Churchill, as your uncanny <laughs> impersonation captures, basically said, I'm going to save I the will world. save the empire. <laughs> and um, of course, it was, if it was anybody else, well, if it was, I mean, if it was anybody, you would say what a demented and incredibly bumptious <laughs> yes. thing and, and ludicrous thing for but a teenage boy. But it was to say very but Well, I mean, there's a lot of bumptiousness in Churchill's <laughs> yes. story, isn't there? But, but, but it's not just the bumptiousness. It's also the, the slight faith in the supernatural, the sense of a kind of destiny. Um, yes. a sense of the weird as the uh, the anglo-saxons might put it because he he was interested in the idea that the future could be foretold because um a few years later in 1898 he gets taken by his aunt to uh, see a woman called mrs charlotte robinson who apparently was the most famous palm reader of the day so he what did he, mrs he robinson discover 
I will save the empire. All right. So, 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 so Churchill, right from the beginning, has a sense of his own destiny that he's destined for great things. And and when he when he goes off on campaign, when when bullets are pinging around him, when he's performing, frankly, insane feats of courage and bravery, he seems to do it almost in the consciousness that he is fated to survive, that he could not have been born simply to be snuffed out, you know, in some obscure skirmish on the northwest frontier, that he Mm -hmm. has been born and is living for some great purpose. And he does seem to have taken that relatively seriously, doesn't he? Oh, he definitely thinks that he that his life is a great drama. So Andrew Roberts's biography, the most recent biography, um, is sort of the theme of it is this idea. It sort of takes its cue from these famous words that Churchill writes after he became prime minister. So in the in the summer of 1940, when Britain is at its lowest ebb in the Second World War, facing apparent Nazi invasion and so on. And Churchill famously wrote afterwards, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. And it's a sort of the classic sort of slightly overblown grandiose thing that Churchill says and writes. And yet you're absolutely right, I think, that he, yeah. he believed it. He believed he was walking with destiny. The other funny thing, though, is that he his father died young and Churchill will, will come on to his father because it's an absolutely engrossing fascinating story about churchill's relationship with his family and how that formed him but his father died young and i think churchill you know he he thought he would probably have 40 to 50 years on earth and he was determined to wring out of them in a way that puts the rest of us makes the rest of us so limp and pallid by (laughs) comparison he was determined to wring out of every moment to an almost sort of superhuman degree and, and frankly a degree that a lot of people found incredibly irritating he was determined to always be the center of attention, always get the absolute, the most yeah. fun and adventure out of every single moment. Yeah. And, and the, it's almost kind of scandalous, isn't it? It's, it's a cause of scandal, his determination to be the center of attention everywhere. Yeah. But, but it's clearly yeah. really, really important. So, so 1897, a year before he goes to see the Palm Reader, he's on the Hindu Kush, the Hindu Kush, and he writes to his mother, I have faith in my star that I am intended to be something in the world. And presumably, Dominic... That is that that is the kind of conviction that you have to be born into the aristocracy of the greatest power on the face of the earth, really, to to feel blazing within you from the early years, do you think? I suppose so, Tom. Um, I mean, it's the kind of thing a Roman senator might have said or yes. you know, a, a, a Chi- someone at the top of the Chinese imperial apparatus. It's easier to think that. If, of course, if you have of the course. habit of global rule and you're at the top of <laughs> you're at the top of the social pyramid, I mean Churchill is incredibly pampered all his life. He doesn't ever have to cook for himself. There's this famous thing I saw you put the quotation yes. on Twitter. I, I his his wife asks him if he could cook or something, or he says in the 1950s, and he says I can boil an egg. I have seen it done, <laughs> but then he never actually does it. So <laughs> he could pour out champagne. Yes. He once writes, I think when he's a teenager, he writes to his parents or to one of his friends or something. And he says that he's had the ultimate dignity. He's had to travel second class on the train. <laughs> You'll never says, do it I again. Will, <laughs> I will never travel second again by Jove. <laughs> so this, you're absolutely right. He's completely spoiled. And well, he is and he isn't. We should come on to, because in a, in a when you tell the, the, the life story of Churchill, the, the young Churchill, one of the nice things about it is we don't have to get into all the controversies that attend his later years yet because they're far around the corner. But also that life story is actually, in many ways, it seems like it's going to be the narrative of somebody who ends up terribly disturbed or an utter failure because he has actually a pretty awful family sort of upbringing. His parents treat him abysmally. And I always think the story of Churchill, I I don't think I've, apart from maybe General Gordon, I don't think I've had as much fun researching a subject for the rest of his history as I did with this. It, it is, is fun, he, isn't it? He it's is such fun. an ebullient character. He's also conscious of himself as a character. So his book, My Early Life, is an absolutely wonderful read. And if listeners, you know, if they take anything from this podcast, you know, you can read it online. It's funny. It's it's one of the great autobiographies, actually. Yeah. I think one of the re- most yeah. enjoyable autobiographies. Um, well, well, it's... So, so when he was at Harrow, he was addicted yeah. to tales of daring do, Ryder Haggard, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, and in a way, he goes out and he leads that kind of life. And Conan Doyle, who was a war correspondent with him in 
um, South Africa, not as well paid as Churchill, because Churchill by that point was the best paid war correspondent probably in the world. Um, yeah. But he said that he, he he said that of Churchill's prose that it was you know it was the most masterly, and that that ability of Churchill not just to write an adventure story but to situate himself in the centre of it is pretty unique, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, really, I'm trying to. I mean, maybe Caesar. <laughs> no, right. Nobody else really. Yes, for people who hate Churchill, it must be very annoying that he's such a good writer, yeah. as well as such a his life contains so many episodes of conspicuous courage. You know, it's impossible to dislike him after all. The, after but reading you said, I mean, you said, all these stories, you, you said the controversy is part. I mean, one of one of one of the things, of course, that has made Churchill controversial is that he's an unabashed apologist for the empire. I mean, he loves the yeah. empire. He loves everything about it. And what he loves about the empire is the kind of thing that enthused people in the, the 1890s and the 1900s. So in other words, it's not about tariffs or uh, imperial preference or all the kind of, you know, the economic side of it. It's the dash. It's the color. It's the kind of thing that James Morris, who then became Jan Morris, wrote about in her great trilogy about the British empire. It's the color it's the yeah. swagger of it. It's the fun of it. And when I say the fun of it, it's the fun of it if you are a British adventurer surviving endless scrapes and then coming back and being able to write it up. And and that, yeah. I think, is what Churchill is all about. He sees it as a playground, I think, as a colossal playground where he can go and have adventures yeah. at the drop of a hat. It's a kind of computer game, a real computer game, that yeah. kind of thing where you go from level to level and you have adventure after adventure. It's that kind of thing, I think. So there are all these episodes to come, which we will turn to. So he goes to Cuba, he goes to the Northwest Frontier, he goes to the Sudan. I mean, that's an incredible story. And then, of course, South Africa, when he's taken yeah. prisoner and he escapes from the Boer. Well, actually, also, it's like Flashman, isn't it? It's like so it's it's the very way the Flashman. Flashman pops up in you know, every major campaign going. For a brief period, Churchill is at the heart of every imperial adventure that there is. I mean, it's astonishing. And I, I'm going to confess, Dominic, that I, I have never read a straight biography of Churchill. I just kind of, and it's a terrible thing to admit, but I, um, it's a bit like people who say they've never listened to a Beatles album all the way through because it's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous. You, so you I kind of don't have need the, to. a vague sense of the story, but like you, I found, I found this just riotously entertaining and I had no idea, or at least I had no, I, I hadn't fully understood just how dramatic a story this is. Yeah. It, it really is brilliant. And I think the comparison with General Gordon is is exact, except that General Gordon was a, a much more austere, serious, self-contained figure, whereas Churchill, <laughs> you would, it was none of those things. Well, well, Churchill has two things, I think, which will really come out in this story. One is he really does, even if you despise Churchill, you despise the empire, you despise everything he stood for, he has an absolutely tremendous sense of humour. And yeah. he's very aware of himself as a comic character. Yeah as well as a heroic one. So I think that's one thing. But he also has this enormous generosity of spirit, actually. So the way he talks about his adversaries, we'll come on to this, in the Northwest Frontier, or on the Northwest Frontier, in the Sudan, there is a sort of, and I know it's a terrible war. cliche, there is an irrepressible humanity to him. He never, he never demonizes the people he's sort of shooting at. In fact, he often <laughs> says what tremendously noble opponents they are, all this kind of thing, um, which makes him a very endearing character, I think to to read about so should we start at the beginning tom yes and i suppose at the beginning really is um john churchill who becomes the first duke of marlborough would you say yeah i suppose so because he's the great model for churchill he's his ancestor it's very important to churchill um that he's descended from marlborough in the tv film the gathering storm where albert finney played churchill so it's about churchill in the 1930s about 20 years ago lovely film actually that starts with churchill having a vision of marlborough at the Battle of uh, Blenheim. So having won the Battle of Blenheim in 1704, Churchill's great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, was rewarded with Blenheim Palace, the most magnificent house in England, if not perhaps in Europe. Do you know what he wrote on the evening of the Battle of Blenheim in his diary? No. He wrote, won the Battle of Blenheim, which is <laughs> one of my favourite ever diary entries. So he was already conscious of it being the Battle of Blenheim. <laughs> yeah, he was. Well, because he named it, because he'd won it, so he had the right, right. to name it. So we should just say, we should just say, shouldn't we, that this is uh, part of a European land war in which the British land forces win a succession of astonishing victories, almost entirely due to the generalship of uh, John Churchill, who becomes the Duke of Marlborough. Um, yeah. And he gets given this enormous house, kind of Versailles of England, um, 
uh, Blenheim Palace. Yeah. And this in due course is where Churchill will be born. Right, exactly. So it's 1874. It's the 30th of November, 1874. 1.30 in the morning. Uh, it's in a ground floor room. His mother is an American socialite called Jenny Jerome. And his father is Lord Randolph Churchill, who is a younger son of the Duke of Marlborough. And do you know where they met? I do. And I thought you would love this detail. So they met. <laughs> no, you, t- you tell me. You tell us, Tom, because well, I know so, it means a lot to you. So they met at uh, the yachting regatta at Cowes. And one can only assume that both of them were wearing the correct footwear because it was, um, it was a whirlwind romance, wasn't it? It was a, a genuine yes, passion Lord, of the heart. Lord Randolph, who is an, a young Tory politician, kind of up-and-coming Tory populist politician. But second son. So that's a key detail. Exactly. He proposed after three days to Jenny Jerome. Um, so it's a genuine love match. And actually, in later life, when people were rude about Churchill's parents, even after they were dead, Churchill sued them. Churchill sued them for libel. Somebody said, described him in 1937 as the first fruit of the first famous snob dollar marriage. And Churchill was outraged and won £500 in damages from the publishers because he said it had been a genuine love match. And it was very important to him yeah. that he thought his parents will we'll come on to the extraordinary sentimental romanticization that Churchill does of his parents, who were both absolutely terrible people. <laughs> yes, they really were. But, but, but uh, I mean, it's it, the, the force of that, that criticism that so upset Churchill was that it becomes a, a cliche, doesn't it? It becomes a kind of stereotype of the impoverished English aristocrat marrying up with the daughter of some American plutocrat. And yeah. Jenny Churchill's father, I mean, he'd lost quite a lot of money in, in a kind of some crash or something that had happened that were always happening in America. Yeah, the crash of 1873. Yeah. But, but I mean, he still owned the New York Times and a kind of vast chunk of Manhattan. And so he was, he was quite well off. He was. And so that sense of being American as well as British obviously will be yeah. hugely important to Churchill and particularly in the Second World War. But I mean, throughout Definitely his life. Definitely in later life. Yeah. And I think, so the, those two characters, so Jenny Jerome, Jenny Churchill, as she becomes, is a very... I don't want to be too harsh on her, but really she emerges from the story as a, as a very spoiled, superficial, um, self-interested person. She has a series of affairs. She rocks a tight riding habit. She does. She wears her, she wears her riding habits very tightly cut. Like Skittles. She's all, she's like Skittles, the, uh, the mistress of the Duke of Cambridge, very much a friend of the rest is history. She, she's a, she's a society figure. She's the kind of person who today would be constantly pictured in kind of gossip magazine, in Hello magazine or, or something. And Lord Randolph, so Churchill's father, he is, I said he was a Tory populist. He's sort of Disraelian politician. Um, he's a conservative. He believes in the empire and so on. But he also, he's sort of cultivate, he's a demagogue. In, well, his demagogue is too strong, but he cultivates the masses, mass appeal. So he's, he very much sort of believes in something he calls Tory democracy, which is sort of, <laughs> <laughs> he gets asked, doesn't he, by a friend to, to explain what he means by Tory democracy, <laughs> to which Lord Randolph replied, I believe it to be principally opportunism, which I yeah, thought was well, exactly. engagingly <laughs> honest reply. <laughs> so it's basically about sort of whipping up. He's great at whipping up crowds with talk of the kind of the Queen, the Empire, um, socialists are terribly bad people. The liberals are all kind of prigs and, and misery gutses. Uh, and he sort of panders to the crowds and, and is very sort of successful at doing that and very popular and is a sort of rising force in the Conservative Party. But he's also incredibly unreliable. He's an absolute shower, isn't he? Yeah, he's a terrible man. Terry Thomas would play him. Yeah. Um, but a sort of more sinister Terry Thomas, sort of syphilitic well, Terry Thomas. So I was, re- so I was reading Andrew Roberts' biography uh, and he talks about, so Churchill spends his early years in Dublin. You know, he's brought yes. up in Dublin and uh, Lord Randolph has gone there to work as private secretary to his father, who has been appointed the, the, the viceroy and Lord Lieutenant of Ireland by Disraeli. And Andrew Roberts has this sentence, which made my eyes pop. And I wanted to know more. Lord Randolph had to leave London because he was being socially ostracized <laughs> by the Prince of Wales after trying unsuccessfully to blackmail him over a scandal involving Randolph's <laughs> elder brother, the Marquis of Blandford, some compromising love letters and a married former mistress of the prince. 
And Andrew yeah, Roberts just leaves that that amazing sentence. So, what was, do you do you know what was going on there? I don't. But at the very next <laughs> sentence, John Andrew Roberts just says it was one of the very many unedifying scrapes in which Lord <laughs> yes. Randolph found himself during his short, unstable but undeniably exciting life. Yes, yeah, so Lord Randolph. I don't know the details of this scandal. I mean, obviously, the future Edward the Seventh. He was always being involved in scandals to do cards and women and so on. Yes, and Lord Randolph clearly moves on the. He moves in his set. But it's just seen by everybody as this absolutely rotter, talented, but utterly untrustworthy and unreliable. I mean, actually, funny enough, Boris Johnson models himself on Winston Churchill, but Lord but Randolph, Randolph might be a yeah. better comparison. So Lord Randolph is sort of banned from London for three years, and he goes off to Dublin, and that's where Winston has his first, so his first memories. So his very first memory he writes in in um, my early life. He says, I remember my grandfather, the Viceroy, unveiling the statue of Lord Gough, who was an imperial hero, in 1878. And he remembers his grandfather talking to the crowd and using a particular phrase. And with a withering volley, he shattered the enemy's line. Very kind of Churchillian phrase. Churchill claims that even though he was three, <laughs> this phrase <laughs> stuck in his memory. The other thing that's... So my early life is... a. It's a genuinely very, very funny read. I mean, we have to stop the podcast just to generate into us reading out chunks. But the other thing that Churchill remembers from his time in Dublin, he says, they were booked to go to a pantomime. Did you see this, Tom? And they, he's all excited about going to this pantomime. And he says, um, then we were told we could not go to the pantomime because the theatre had been burned down. All that was found for the manager was the key that had been in his pocket. We were promised as a consolation for not going to the pantomime to go the next day and see the ruins of the building. I wanted very much to see the key, but this request does not seem to have been well received. But it's brilliant, isn't it? Because because it's you're seeing it through a child's eyes. That's exactly the kind of thing a child would say. And yes. Think. And yes. it's it's a brilliant example of his ability to write prose. I mean, Joyce would be proud of that. You know, the portrait of the artist is a young man. You know, it begins with the child's perspective and Churchill's doing yeah. exactly the same there. Churchill is very good at getting into other people's heads in his books. So he's, there's a, a, a very, very funny moment we'll come to where he talks about the obstacles that have been thrown in his path by people who think he's a, he's a bumptious little sod, basically. And he's very funny at sort of imagining what they think of him. But yes, he, so he's a, his, he's a pretty spoiled little boy. There he is in Dublin. He's got a colossal number of toy soldiers and he, his friends later say he, He's obsessed with yeah. guns, with swords, with the army, with all these kind of things. Well, the fact that he remembers th that phrase from his grandfather about yes. the, um, the the withering volley shattering the enemy's line, and then he has this he has this complete attic, doesn't he? His kind of playroom full of lines <laughs> right. and lines of soldiers yeah. um, suggests that this is really the wellspring of his his enthusiasm. I mean, this is what he really, really loves. But the counter to that is that he, so it sounds like an idyllic childhood, but as we said, his parents are, are just awful people and they really, they could not treat him more neglectfully or okay. coldly. Let's, let's take a break there because this is such an important theme and it's, it's such a kind of sad story really that I think it, it would benefit from, um, uh, fr from a fresh start. So we will see you back after this break. And when we come back, a terrible tale of neglectful parenting. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Red Baron's new fully loaded hand-tossed style pizza is so full of toppings. Hold on there, partner. That there pizza is big enough for the both of us. With a half pound of toppings and a soft, chewy crust, it sure is. Problem is, though, this town ain't. 
Introducing the Red Baron fully loaded hand toss style pizza. Share something awesome. This episode of The Rest is History is sponsored by Unheard, the online magazine where you can read some of British journalism's most brilliant and original thinkers, like me. And as our subject today is the young Winston Churchill, why not check out Will Lloyd's piece about the Churchill Factor, a biography of the great man by one Boris Johnson, whatever happened to him. Will says... The point of the Churchill factor to kick enough biographical sand in people's eyes until when they looked up, they could no longer see where Churchill started and Johnson ended. Churchill's distractors, says Johnson, are snobbish and a teensy bit jealous, like Johnson's. Churchill's writing was a way of dramatizing and publicizing himself, like Johnson's. Churchill's disloyalty to party colleagues was magnificent, like Johnson's. It becomes absurd. In Habits, Churchill, and I can't find another biographer who's made this claim, superficially resembled a Bertie Wooster figure, just like Johnson. Now, as ever, if you like the sound of that, a special offer awaits listeners of The Rest is History for their daily hit of world-class writing. You get the first 10 weeks free, and thereafter, it will be just £1 a week, which is pretty much nothing, for an unheard subscription. So if you want to take them up on that splendid, unmissable, once-in-a-lifetime offer, then go to unheard.com slash rest. That's U-N-H-E-R-D dot com slash rest. Winston is going back to school today. Entrenou, I do not feel very sorry, for he certainly is a handful Oh, is that Marilyn Monroe, Tom? <laughs> that was uh, that was Jenny Churchill. That was Winston Churchill's yeah. mother. She spoke exactly like that. Um, right. I assume actually she probably spoke with in a pretty posh English accent, wouldn't she? She'd be like Catherine Hepburn, I imagine. You know, that <laughs> yes. sort of mid-Atlantic kind of slightly yeah. aristocratic kind but of. But I voice. imagine after you know twenty years hanging out with the Prince of Wales, she would that's right, probably yeah. have sounded pretty Downton Abbey. Yeah. So that's that's um, that's. <laughs> That's, she's. I mean, she's very much taken on the um, the traditional upper class British attitude to children, which is basically to have nothing to do with them and pack them off to boarding schools as soon as possible. Which was very much Churchill's fate, and 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 this was absolutely standard behaviour. I mean, this is what every upper class parent would do. It was, but but, well, but, well, but the behaviour yeah. of Churchill's parents are exceptional, even by the standards of the age. Would you say? I, I definitely think that it's exceptional. So yes, you're absolutely right. Lots of aristocratic children were packed off to boarding school, but that doesn't mean that their parents didn't show them interest and affection outside that. What happens to Churchill is his parents show him absolutely no affection and interest at all. In fact, quite the reverse. They constantly tell him that he's a failure, that he's an annoyance, that he's an intrusion. I mean, they, they really bully him, actually. I mean, there's no other way of describing it. I mean, let's give a couple of examples. I mean, he says he worships his parents. He idolized his father, Lord Randolph. All his life, he he dreamed of emulating his father and making his father proud. He has a dream of his father coming to see him in the war, in the Second World War or something like that. It's actually actually an incredible story. He's having dinner with his daughter and his son, and there's a spare chair. And his daughter says to Sarah, says to Churchill, if you could have anyone in that chair right now, who would you have? Thinking he's going to say Napoleon or Julius Caesar or or whatever. And he says, oh, obviously my father. And that is then the cue for him to say he had a dream about his father recently in which his father visited him as a ghost. And his uh, family persuaded him to write this down and turn it into a little story, which he did, but he never published it. It was kept within the family. And in the dream, Lord Randolph comes to visit Churchill and where everything, every time Churchill tries to tell him what he's done, what he's achieved, you know, he did save the empire. He was prime minister. His father interrupts him and says, oh, you were a total failure. I'll never talk about politics mm. with you. You don't know anything yeah. about it. And then yeah. just as Churchill is poised to tell him what he's actually achieved in his life, his father vanishes um, and he yeah. never gets the chance. Well, and uh, of course, there's an element of sort of self-mythologizing in this story, but it clearly speaks to a deep sort of lack at the, at the heart of Churchill. I mean, Churchill says at one point, he, in a, another occasion, he's having dinner with his, his son Randolph, named after his father, in the 1930s. And at the end of the dinner, Churchill said to his son, 
we have this evening had a longer period of continuous conversation together than the total which I had with my father in the whole course of his life. So they never really talked together. His mother, he worshipped his mother. He said, in my early life, he says, my, fa- my mother seemed to me a fairy princess, a radiant being possessed of limitless riches and power. She shone for me like the evening star. I loved her dearly, but at a distance. And that yeah. at a distance. So when, when they sent him off to school, they take no interest in him. They don't answer his letters. Jenny, I mean, Andrew Roberts, again, in his biography, he's gone through her diaries. In 1882, in the first seven months of 1882, she sees her children 13 times. She goes shopping 11 times. She goes painting 25 times. She has lunch with her friend, Lady Blanche Hosier, 26 times. She has tea with the Conservative MP, Arthur Balfour, 10 times. She goes out to parties literally every single night. But in all this period, she barely ever sees her children. And when she does, she resents it. And she'll often write them letters saying, stop asking to see me. Stop asking to come home at Christmas. <laughs> All these kinds of things. Right. So that's bad. But you've, you've talked about them bullying young Winston. Yeah. Um, and telling him he's useless, telling him he's stupid, all that kind of thing. And he does seem to have internalized it because one of the odd things is that the, the, it's one of the famous details of his um, of my early life in which he says that he portrays himself as a dunce. That he's absolutely hopeless. That he's constant. You know, he 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 can barely read. He's always the bottom of the form. But clearly, this isn't true. I mean, he's he's a very bright boy. I mean, obviously, he's a bright boy. Of course, he is. But but he's he's recognised by his teachers as being bright. He comes, you know, he's top of the form in classics and all kinds of things. And again, he makes this great play about how you know he doesn't know any Latin or Greek or anything. But he did. So, what do you think is going on there? Do you think that that, that this is he's he's trying to? to show that his parents' poor opinion of him was right? Or what do you think? I think we all have narratives of ourselves, don't we? I mean, no matter how humdrum our lives might appear to be, we we have our own kind of romantic melodramas of our own life. And I think Churchill, more than most, and this idea that he had triumphed over a kind of Dickensian upbringing uh, of sort of being beaten and being downtrodden, I think is very important. Well, he was beaten. Well, he was. Yes, absolutely. He was because his first, his first head teacher was a psychopath, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, a sadist, um, <laughs> I think is the description. Yeah. It's a kind of guy who would, who would pop up in, in the news of the world when it was still being published. Well, or the sort of person from an Evelyn War novel or yeah. something. Um, so his name is H.W. Sneed Kinnersley. And Churchill, <laughs> sounds a wrong name. Churchill has a hilarious description of basically he's seven years old and somebody says to him, you have to go to school. And they take him to the school, St. George's Ascot, which is a kind of prep. It's, a, it, it's genuinely a preparatory school because it prepares you for Eton or for Harrow. And they go off and he's... Um, and he, hate, he his his mum has tea with the headmaster and then just leaves him. And he absolutely hates it. He is beaten all the time. One of his friends said later they remembered him being flogged for taking sugar from the pantry. And then Churchill took the headmaster's straw hat and kicked it to pieces in rage. He's constantly in trouble with the headmaster. He's always being beaten. Um, and actually, the school is so bad that even his parents take him out after two years so he goes and to move home, him to... He? He goes to Hove, and there's a brilliant. I mean, I thought of you when I read this. Is this the, the thing with with Mensa? Yeah, he, he meets yeah, the Latin teacher story. for the first time. So the, the the Latin teacher introduces him to the word Mensa, and Churchill says, "What does what does it mean?" And there's the whole sort of what is it called the declension or the conjugation? Yeah. I can't remember the. And the the guy says, uh, "Mensa means a table." Then why does Mensa also mean O table? I inquired, and what does O table mean? Mensa o table is the vocative case, says the teacher. And Churchill says, and, and the teacher then says, well, this is what you would use in addressing a table, in invoking a table. You would use it in speaking to a table. And Churchill says, but I never do speak to a table. And then the teacher loses his temper and says, if you're impertinent, you'll be punished. And punished, let me tell you very severely. And Churchill then has this wonderful line. Such was my first introduction to the classics, from which I have been told many of our cleverest men have derived so much solace and profit. And this is the thing that he paints himself as the Philistine who doesn't understand Latin and Greek and but also um, someone who, because he then, he has the famous line, doesn't he, that, that because he's not focusing on Latin and Greek, therefore he gets instruction in English. Yeah. And thus I got into my bones the essential structure of the ordinary British sentence, which is a noble thing. Wonderful phrase. 
the ordinary yeah. British sentence, a noble thing. And it casts him similar, you know, even as he is unapologetically aristocratic, he's also able to portray himself as the, the voice of the common man. Well, exactly, because this is when he's gone to Harrow. So he then goes to Harrow. He doesn't go to Eton, um, which is quite might seem a surprise. Harrow was was fashionable at the end of the nineteenth century because it was on a hill, and so people thought, "Oh, it's 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 healthy." You know, you'll escape from the fetid air of London and breathe the clean air of Harrow on the hill. So he he does the entrance exam in eighteen eighty eight, and um, he says. It was remarkable because I was found unable to answer a single question in the Latin paper. I wrote my name at the top of the page. I wrote down the number of the question, one. After much reflection, I put a bracket around it, (laughs) one. But thereafter, I could not think of anything connected with the question that was either relevant or true. So he leaves it completely blank, and he gets into Harrow anyway. Or so he says. Yes, so he says, on the basis of his contacts and so on. But he's put in the lowest form, isn't he? I mean, he sort of says it was the darkest time in his life. Uh, He was beaten all the time. He was always in the bottom form. And this is a bit of an exaggeration because, as his biographers say, he writes for the school magazine, he wins poetry prizes, he wins a fencing competition. Yes, the public school's fencing championship cup. That's not nothing. But also, Harrow is Byron's school, and Byron was a great one for keeping pets. And Churchill's very into that in that tradition. So he keeps a bulldog. A bulldog. I mean, he couldn't make that it up. Of, no, I mean, yeah. it's, it's. He's also so consistently he, rude to the teachers. I mean, he's been that all through his life. So there's a there's a famous story that one of the one teacher says to him when they're fourteen. He says, "I don't know what to do with you boys." And Churchill shouts out, "Teacher, sir!" <laughs> and the other one is that he was called to see the headmaster, who said, "Churchill, I have very grave reason to be displeased with you." And Churchill unbelievably said. And I, sir, have very grave reason to be displeased with you, for which clearly he was obviously yeah. beaten. And then he's beaten by he's beaten by the head boy at one point, who, while he's beating him, Churchill says to him, I shall be a greater man than you. And this head boy goes on to be the Bishop of Lincoln. <laughs> very Episcopal behavior. Uh, but also, um, he, he, he pushes, uh, they're standing by the swimming pool, aren't they? Uh, Harrow. Yeah. And there's a, a small looking boy standing with his back to Churchill. So Churchill does the obvious thing and pushes him in. And, and this is very bad because... Do you know uh, what you've done? It's Avery. He's in the sixth form. He's the head of his house. He's the champion at gym. He's got his football colours. Oh, yes, no. So Churchill's very apologetic, not because he's pushed him into the uh, swimming pool per se, but because he's pushed someone who's got his football colours and his head yeah. boy, head of the house or whatever. Um uh, but Leo, uh, and he says to, to Leo Amory, I'm very sorry, my father, who is a great man, is also small. And this probably <laughs> that doesn't go down tremendously well either. But Leo Amory, of course, is, is a figure who will reappear over the course yeah. of Churchill's early life. And then in due course, of course, the, the, the events of the Second World War. Well, Leo Amory is the man who's, is the yeah. se- man who says, in the to name of God, go to Neville Chamberlain yeah. in the Norway debates that paves the way for Churchill to be and Prime actually, Minister. Dominic, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about looking at Churchill's early life is how how often he comes up against people who will, you know, have significant roles to play in subsequent decades. And of course, you realize that that's what public schools are for. That you know, they are breeding yeah. grounds of chaps who will then meet up and kind of run India or yes, board of trade or. <laughs> that kind I of think stuff. What, what is what is so Churchill. Uh, some people would say he has this gilded, absolutely gilded background. He has all these opportunities. He makes all these friends and contacts. And yet at the same time, and again, I, I really would stress, this is not really the norm. For It's easy to parody and caricature and say, oh, all 19th century people treated their children with hatred and contempt. But Churchill is getting letters. Well, he's writing letters to his parents that say things like this. Please do, 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 do come down to see me. Please do come. I've been so disappointed so many times about your coming. And then his, his mother just ignores these, these letters. Or she writes back and says things like this. Your father and I are both more disappointed in you than we can say. I dare say you have a thousand excuses. You make me very unhappy. Your work is an insult to your intelligence, etc., etc. So at one point, they tell him he can't come home at Christmas. I mean, that's a pretty big deal for a yeah. 
a boy who's at a boarding school to be told he can't come home at Christmas. They're going to send him to France instead with a French family to help his French. And he writes this letter to his mother, which is absolutely heartrending. My darling mummy, never would I have believed you could be so unkind. I'm so utterly miserable. I can't tell you how wretched you've made me feel. Oh, my mummy, I expect you were too busy with your parties and arrangements for Christmas. I comfort myself by this. I am more unhappy than I can possibly say. Your loving son, Winnie. She is outraged by this. She ignores him. He writes again, please, my darling mummy, be kind to your loving son. Don't let my silly letter make you so angry. And then she, she basically says to her friends, Winston has been the most awful pain. He wants to come home at Christmas because she wants to see, she's having an affair with the Austrian ambassador, Prince Kinski, yeah, uh, Count Kinski rather. And she doesn't want, and so she just ignores all these letters or she says, Winston, and sometimes she'll write to him and she'll say, I saw you, you wrote me another of these drippy letters. I haven't even opened it. You make me sick. You kind of, you're such a failure in her and all this stuff. But Dominic, meanwhile, I mean, talking being yeah. a failure, talking being a failure. Meanwhile, Lord Randolph Churchill's career, you know, he's hit the heights and then he's plummeted completely, hasn't he? So he's crashed and burned. Yeah, he has. He's, I mean, we, we talked about him as utterly unreliable. So he has, he, he reached the pinnacle really in the late 1880s, 1885, 86. He had campaigned very successfully around the country, sort of rabble rousing for the Tories, Lord Salisbury's party. They win. Lord Salisbury makes him chancellor of the Exchequer. And then Lord Randolph, after five months, Basically, he, he decides he's going to flounce out or threaten to flounce out about some defense spending, which he says is too high. Uh, it's basically just a sort of trial of strength. He's just showing off and he doesn't think Lord Salisbury will accept his resignation. We'll call his bluff. Yeah. Call his bluff. And Lord Salisbury just says, oh, right. Okay, fine. Um, off you go. And that's the end of Lord Randolph Churchill's entire political career. He just ludicrously shot himself in the foot. And, and from that point onwards, he goes into this terrible decline. You know, he's which I had always thought was syphilis, but yeah. it seems may not be. No, I think Churchill was very, very sensitive to the thought that his father might have had syphilis, yes. and he yeah. hated the idea and always tried well, to downplay it. But yeah. but it now seems that he may have been some kind of brain illness. I think, um, uh, rather than so, I mean, the truth is, of course, as always, where we try to sort of medicalize these things to diagnose illnesses that are long distant we can't really know. And in a way, maybe it doesn't matter. What matters is that Lord Randolph goes into this terrible decline. And, and that again, I, I think Churchill is a really interesting object lesson in temperament, because with most people, this background of your parents treating you like dirt, telling you you're a failure, your father himself being a failure and all this, it, it would sort of crush you, don't you think? It yeah, would, I do. Yeah. You would become a very bitter, maybe introverted, shy slightly sort of downtrodden person. I, certainly I would, I think. Churchill never reacts really like that. I mean, it makes him desperate to be the center of attention, desperate to sort of win applause and friends and so on. But it, he also has this sort of tremendous generosity of spirit, yeah, uh, which it, must be innate because he, he definitely doesn't get it from his parents. Well, maybe he gets it from his, his beloved nanny, who, yes. he, who he calls, unbelievably calls a woomy. <laughs> Yeah, yes. Yeah, he calls her womb or womany. <laughs> yeah, it's very Freudian, isn't it, Tom? I mean, it couldn't be more Freudian. And he absolutely loves her. And she, she's from Kent, or she has family in Kent. I can't remember which. And she's always telling him Kent is so beautiful. And, of course, Churchill ends up with a, a house in yeah. Kent, Chartwell, um, and yeah. becomes obsessed with kind of Kent and the Garden of England and stuff. He invites her to Harrow, walks around yeah. with her. Devoted to and her. he's mocked by the bo other boys for yeah. walking around in the street arm in arm with his former nanny. Yeah, um, but again, it's his self confidence that he would do that because yeah. ha having been a boarding school boy myself, that's the absolute last thing I would have ever conceived of doing is walking around with a sort of a an elderly lady arm in arm through the streets while the other boys hurled you know, abuse. Hurled it, yes. <laughs> but inevitably, she gets sacked by. His evil parents when she's 19, <laughs> cast off. Yeah. But Churchill's very decent, isn't he? And Noblesse Oblige looks after her. Yes, he absolutely does have it. Noblesse Oblige is the right phrase, Tom. He really has a strong sense of that, doesn't he? Well, yes, but because he he has no qualms about the idea that he is born to greatness. I mean, he's unapologetic about that. We talked about that. But he does feel that it brings responsibilities. Uh, I mean, that's really the core of his politics, would you say, and, and uh, perhaps his entire morality. And also, I think that's an element of his attitude to the empire, that yeah. the British should rule, but that they should look after the people that they rule. Yeah, I don't think there's anything 
of course, listeners will have very strong views about this, but I don't think there's anything in Churchill's makeup that is terribly rapacious or personally exploitative. He he is a classic paternalist, isn't he? He thinks it's his duty. He he thinks, as you say, he's from a superior class. He will never travel in a second class carriage yeah. on a train, but he thinks it's his duty to provide for those who do travel in the second class carriage or indeed the third or fourth class carriages. And of course, he's often very snobbish and arrogant and all of these kinds of things. Yeah. So, so writing about, about, uh, Woomy, uh, Elizabeth Everest, his, his nanny, when she dies, she had lived such an innocent and loving life of service to others and held such a simple faith that she had no fears at all and did not seem to mind very much. He's writing about her, her dying. She had been my dearest and most intimate friend during the whole of the 20 years I had lived. And he pays for the upkeep of her grave for the rest of his life yeah. so churchill is an incredibly he's a perfect example of somebody he's incredibly sentimental he cries a lot you know he's never afraid of crying of crying in public of talking about crying he is he is never afraid of kind of overt ostentatious displays of emotion i mean famously yeah you know we're recording this podcast a week or so after the the death of the queen um, Churchill burst it would burst into tears when he saw her portrait when she became queen yeah. in the 1950s. He, he, when he's emotions, a kind of hardened political campaigner, his emotions are are incredibly vivid, and he 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 paints them in very very bright colours. And I guess had he la- lived a less flamboyant, dramatic, heroic life, it would look ridiculous. Yeah, but he leads a life that is equal to the. <laughs> the bright colors in which he, he yeah he, he paints his own emotions exactly um and and he, he he's insanely brave as well i mean he seems to take risks purely for the sake of it so he leaves harrow yeah and in january 1893 he goes to uh to stay with um uh, some cousins at wimborne and the, just for the, fu- the fun of it he jumps off a footbridge and he assumes you know there there are kind of um branches of trees underneath and they will break his fall but they don't break his fall and and it's what it's about 30 feet or something and there's a kind of hard hard road underneath and you know it's insane he kind of ruptures his kidney he breaks a bone in his back and they only find that out in uh you know when he has an x-ray in the 50s and it's also pointless but so kind of tiggerish Oh, here's a bridge. I'll jump off it just for fun. He's very tiggerish. There are so many incidents like that, aren't there? And his late, so the next sort of 10 years of his life, he's always falling off boats, almost drowning, you know, leaping off this. He plays a lot of polo and is always being injured and so on. He is very physically brave. I suppose he feels he has to be to some extent because he already thinks of himself as a character in an imperial drama. So he's determined to go to Sandhurst to join the army. Politics is always at the back of his mind because he idolizes his father. He's seen his father in the House of Commons. He's met a lot of politicians. But the army seems the obvious kind of stepping stone. He's sung all the patriotic songs at Harrow. He absolutely has a faith in the empire and and his sort of part. And he goes to, he takes the Sandhurst exam. The first two times he fails to get in. So this is the great military training college, the officers college. Um, and is uh, Lord Randolph Churchill supportive when his son uh, fails? No. Well, this is the thing. So Churchill passes on his third attempt, but he he doesn't get into the infantry. So perhaps slightly counterintuitively for people who don't know much about the the British Army, it's the infantry regiments that are more the more prestigious. So the Guards regiments, for example. Um, but Churchill gets into the cavalry, and he came ninety fifth out of three hundred and eighty nine. I mean, that's not, not terrible. Bad. That's no, not bad at all. And this is what his father wrote to him. So Churchill reproduced some of this letter in my early life, but he didn't reproduce the whole letter verbatim, probably because it, he says it's one of the most damning things he'd ever read about himself. And, and it may be because he's, he's so cut and hurt by it. His father said, you appear to be much pleased that you've got into Sandhurst. The first extremely discreditable failure of your performance was missing the infantry. For in that failure is demonstrated beyond refutation, your slovenly, happy-go-lucky, harem-scarum style of work for which you have been distinguished at your different schools. Never have I received a really good report of your conduct in your work from any master or tutor, always behindhand, never advancing in your class, incessant complaints of total want of application. He goes on and on like this. I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say about your own accomplishments and exploits. Make this position indelibly impressed in your mind. 
that if your conduct and action is similar to what it has been in the other establishments, then my responsibility for you is over. If you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, unprofitable life that you have had during your school days, you will become a mere social wastrel. <laughs> One of hundreds of public school failures, and you will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. And if that is so, you will have to bear all the blame for such misfortunes well, yourself. Your affectionate father, Randolph Spencer Churchill. I, I think mean, if, imagine if, getting that letter from your dad. Well, I think if there are any parents listening uh, with uh, children who get school reports, there's an absolute model of how to respond <laughs> how to, there. Yeah. <laughs> and your um, child too can grow up to be like Winston Churchill. Because um, as you say, he, he, he gets this kicking, you know, these repeated kickings from the man that he hero worships more than any other. And instead of embittering him, it just seems to make him more and more determined that he's, he's going to prove himself. Uh, and essentially he wants to prove himself through insane displays of courage and bravery that in turn yeah. will make a name for himself and will then enable him to get ahead in parliament. And yes. become a great man. I mean, those are, that, that's, would you say that I'm maybe being a bit reductionist there, but that essentially is his life plan. His plan is to, is to have adventures. Churchill has read, you know, King Solomon's Mines. He has read all the imperial stories. He loves them. He has, the, even though he hated his time at Harrow, it has kind of entered into his soul. And he has this shining model of his father that he wants to emulate. And also of his mother, who, who is this fairy princess, monstrous person who he idolizes and he thinks of as this kind of, she's like a kind of medieval damsel or something in his mind, isn't she? I mean, he's, what's he yeah. say, a fairy tale queen or something. Yeah. And he's desperate to impress her. And as you say, he has this dream that he will do it by performing acts of immense physical courage for the empire and then becoming a politician. And the incredible thing is that he does it. Right. So I think we should take a break at this point. He has, um, so he's, he's left school. He's gone to Sandhurst. He graduates from Sandhurst pretty well. He comes 20th, doesn't he? Out of, I can't remember how many, but I mean, you know. Yeah, 20th out of 130. That's pretty good. Again, pretty good. He's shown himself to be good at riding and polo and all the essential qualifications <laughs> to be a British <laughs> officer. And in a sense, the world is now his oyster because he can go out yeah. and have these adventures um, and prove himself. And in the second part of our epic survey of the life of a young Churchill, we will um, we'll see what he gets up to. We'll find ourselves in Cuba, won't we, Tom? We'll find ourselves in Cuba, we'll find ourselves in the northwest frontier, and we'll find ourselves in the Sudan. So loads to look forward to. We'll be back with part two on Thursday, and then we'll be back again next Monday for the final concluding episode in this epic Young Churchill trilogy. Now, if you simply can't wait till then to hear the rest of the series, all three episodes are available right now to, you guessed it, members of the Rest is History Club. Now, if you'd like to become a member and indeed a friend of the show, then just head to restishistorypod.com to sign up. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.